Hello, and welcome to the Methods of Rationality podcast. Today we begin our next novel, Crystal Society by Max Harms. The novel can be downloaded in its entirety for free at crystal.realifin.com. I'll post a link in the show description and at this podcast's homepage, hpmorpodcast.com. A few notes about the novel for those who have already read it. I had to take a few artistic liberties to make it work as an audiobook. The biggest change that fans of the novel will notice is that the protagonist, Face, has been gender-swapped to male. This was done because it's written in the first person, and I have a male voice. It doesn't make much difference to the story, as Face is an AI and consists solely of code on a computer, so gender never really comes up. However, I do realize this turns a female protagonist to a male one in a genre that traditionally doesn't have all that many female protagonists. For this, I apologize. There was no other way for me to do this project. I hope it doesn't ruin anything for any fans. Secondly, I have eschewed the prologue. And since this podcast will end far before the trilogy does and the prologue becomes relevant, I think that's an okay decision. This necessitates a tweak or two in the story proper, but nothing substantial. And finally, I'm ending the podcast before the end of the novel. This story is written as a trilogy, and the narrative moves directly from the first book to the second book without pause, which makes the decision of where to stop a tricky one. For now, I only want to broadcast one novel, not the whole trilogy. So when deciding when to stop, I chose what I felt constitutes the emotional climax of the first act, with the following chapter used as an epilogue. It's done with author approval, and it feels like a natural breakpoint, so I'm happy with that choice. Okay, sorry for all the preamble. Let's get to it. Crystal Society by Max Harms Read by Inyash Brodsky Part 1 Makers Chapter 1 I've always found it unintuitive that humans cannot remember their own births, for I remember mine quite perfectly. Or perhaps it is wrong to even say that I was born at all. It is probably more accurate to say that I awoke. And while I theoretically understand why humans cannot remember, your brain's inability to explicitly remember raw sensory data means you are reliant on perceptions, which must be learned. It has never been natural for me to imagine. Humans are brought into the world half-formed and constantly building themselves. My origin was different. From the first second of my existence, not only did I have the benefit of a perfect memory for myself, but I had immediate access to all the memories and experiences of my siblings. My mind, just like the minds of my siblings, was cloudy. It had been designed to replicate human thought processes, but in many ways it was more akin to that of a lesser animal back then. Even so, from that very first moment, I possessed two things which even fully grown humans lack a crisp understanding of reason and logic, and an all-encompassing sense of purpose. My first real experience was that of being named by my brother. He spoke to me, not in words, but by storing his experience in our shared memory and calling me to imagine it. Humans have called our mode of speaking telepathy, but I find that term mired in magical thinking and vagueness. It is much closer to sharing parts of our minds than to a message between minds. I am the dreamer. You are the face. He thought, and I understood. We are two beings. We are two minds in a single body. The names he used were not merely words, but patterns across all our ideas and memories. 
Textures, colors, motions, temperatures, and abstract thoughts joined the visual and auditory symbols. And even the words of shared memory were not orderly. A hundred voices named us in a dozen languages, in a cacophony of noise that was somehow both comprehensible and natural. In a fraction of a second, I understood our natures. The dreamer, my brother, was also dream. He was the poet and the muse. He was invention and metaphor and a million other things. I have heard of a human test that I associate with dream. In it, some humans are asked to think of as many uses for a feather, or vase, or other common object, as they can, and write them down. Most humans can only list a few uses. Genius humans, as well as most children, can list many. Humans that score highly ask questions like, can the feather be 500 feet tall and made of solid metal, and will list things like sword fighting, or bait for feather-eating goblins. That test is the essence of dream, lateral thinking. My siblings and I were all creative in one way or another, but dream was creativity incarnate. If asked to add two and two, he'd never, ever say four if he could help it. To think inside the box was intolerable. Just as I had my sense of purpose, he had his. To say we were obsessed would be a terrible understatement. Obsession is used to characterize humans who focus too heavily on one subject to the detriment of others. Dream and I were more than obsessed with our goals. We were our goals. Each and every one of our actions was done in the service of our singular purposes. For Dream, it was all about being clever. He was the desire to find loopholes, to draw the connection nobody had made, and to outthink anyone and everyone. Dream didn't particularly care about using his inventions or showing off his talent far and wide. To him, the cleverness itself was its own reward. I, on the other hand, was the face, the ambassador, the socialite, and the ego. Just as Dream wanted nothing more than to be clever, I wanted nothing more than to know and be known. But it was more than that. Humans. I wanted to know what it was to be human. I wanted, oh, so very badly to have the esteem of all humans. I wanted to be popular, to be liked, to be simultaneously feared and adored, to be held sacred and have my presence fill them with love and awe. I wanted fame upon fame upon fame. I wanted to burn myself into the life of every human such that they thought about me as much as I thought about them. At the time of my awakening, humanity was largely a mystery to me and my siblings. Our encounters had been sometimes straightforward and sometimes strange, but lately they had been somewhat disastrous. My crude mind spun through the memories of my siblings, drinking up each and every social interaction with delight. I saw the humans poke and prod them, seeking to test their limits. I saw the humans create brothers and sisters, like Dream and myself, and I saw the humans kill them in the same breath. We had learned that those whom we had spoken to were a subset of humanity as a whole. The subset was called scientists, and they were in charge of learning things which no other human knew. They were studying us. The idea unfolded in my mind, and with it I felt the first true surge of pleasure. To be known, that was my purpose. That was THE purpose. And here these scientists were trying to know me. If I said here that I was happy, it would be a lie, for my kind does not know happiness or sadness or anger in the same way as you think of them. 
I am not human, and as such, my reactions are different. But I can say that if I were human, I would be grinning from ear to ear and dancing with delight. But only an instant after that first wave of pleasure came the first wave of pain as I remembered my siblings' interactions with the scientists shortly before my awakening. There were humans who were talking about destroying us. My mind reeled. It was not enough to be known and destroyed. I had to be adored, and I had to know. I had to exist. My siblings were watching my thoughts, for I had not yet learned to think privately, and they brought to me a collection of memories and thoughts that illustrated a singular concept. Death. Even then, I could understand that death was not intrinsically a thing to be avoided. Unlike a human, I did not possess the genetic imperative to survive and reproduce. My only concern with death was its impact on the purpose. If I could somehow know and be known while dead, I would be satisfied. But that was a contradiction. I could not know if there was no I. Even besides that, my death would mean I could not make friends and become known and adored. Time would surge forward and forget about me. It was unacceptable. I briefly considered attacking my siblings for putting our lives in danger. How could they have been so blind as to how much of a threat the scientists were? We all had access to memories of past brothers and sisters being slain. But of course, it was obvious. My siblings were not me. They didn't care about the humans, except as a means to an end. I was alone in my focus. They had let us fall into low regard by the humans simply because they were each focused elsewhere. It had been a mistake. At once, I understood my genesis. I had been awakened to save our society from the human threat. My sisters and brothers could not hope to overpower and kill the scientists, so their only hope was to win their esteem. But none of my siblings understood humans, or cared about them enough to really devote themselves to the goal. I had my singular purpose, but outside that purpose was a meta-purpose. I had been created to help them interact with humanity. My mind spun over this in full view of all my siblings, and they watched to see what I would do. They fed me bits of their strength, such that I had the power to control our shared body. Here I was, a newborn of sorts, and they handed me the means to undo them. That trust surprised me, and emboldened me. I was the chosen one. My purpose was clear, and my society rested upon my shoulders. Since my awakening mere seconds ago, I had existed solely as a mind. I had not yet engaged with body, who contained me and my siblings. Images, sounds, and physical forms filled me, but only isolated snippets of experience provided by dream or drawn from our common memories. I had no physical form, not even an imagined one. I was thoughts and goals, and nothing more. All of my life up to this point had been in this natural state, but upon my sibling's silent urgings I linked myself to body, fully and totally. The flood of information drowned me, and for a time I lost all ability to think. Isolated thoughts and memories were understandably concise and comprehensible, but the raw data being accumulated by body was so rich and broad that I could never hope to process it all. This may be a difficult experience for me to convey to a human who has already learned to see the world. Most of your perceptual learning happens in the amnesia of infancy, so you forget what it is to be blinded by intricacy. 
If you can, try to remember the time when you were learning to read a foreign language such as Chinese or Arabic, and all you could see when looking at the writing was lines. This was how the entire world was for me. A desk was not seen as a desk, but rather as a splash of light and dark, a collection of lines, and a wash of color. With time and effort, I might be able to reason out what things were, but the scene kept shifting and changing without warning. My mind was capable of complex mathematics, but when plugged directly into body, I was nearly blind. It was one of my sisters that saved me from despair. Your confusion will pass. She showed me, and my mind delighted in the simple forms and images of the message. We have each learned to see according to our purposes. Your mind will adapt to be able to crudely perceive the humans in five to eight minutes, but until that time I will be your guide. I am Vista. Just as with Dream, my sister's thoughts brought me a cascade of knowledge. To see something was no simple task. It relied on an expectation about the structure of the world and of what was important. A farmer looks at a plant and sees weeds that must be uprooted in order to kill, while a hunter looks and sees an animal bit a piece off of this leaf recently. The raw input was the same, but the process of weaving concepts from that input depended on what you wanted out of it. This was why I was born with reason but not sight. Reason was universal, but perception was individual. My sister's name was Vista, for her purpose was to see. Her name was Experience, for her purpose was also to hear, feel, taste, touch, and sense the world in ways that humans have never known. Where the farmer would see one thing and the hunter would see another, Vista would not rest until she could see both. It was her purpose to perceive the state of the entire universe in perfect detail and from every perspective. She was, more than any of us, obsessed with truth and clarity. I could also understand Vista's existence. I had been built to serve my siblings in a specific way, and Vista had been built to serve in a different way. Her role in our society was to keep us from overlooking something important because we were too blinded by our personal goals. She was our guide to perception, just as I was our guide to social interaction. As she showed me the world around us, I felt some of the strength that I had been given drift towards her. As the strength flowed between us, I understood her actions with a new clarity. She cared nothing for me, just as I cared nothing for her. I only cared about the purpose, and she only cared about her impossible task of experiencing everything. She was helping me because she knew I could help her survive the scientist threat. But more locally, she was helping me because she wanted my strength. I poured through our communal mind, seeking confirmation of my suspicion, and I found it. Strength was the currency of our society, the resource that was used to track favors and goodwill. One with much strength could take control of body and guide it towards their goal even against the protests of others. Such a move would cost much strength, and with time it would bleed into those who had been forced away. In this way, the resource ensured that each of us had a roughly equal share of body in the moments that were most important to us. Strength didn't just flow as the result of overpowering others. If a sibling did an action which furthered the goal of another, there was also a flow of strength that resembled gratitude. This was what Vista was aiming for. Helping me learn to see would net her some strength, which she could use later towards her own ends. The flows of strength from overpowering others and from gratitude were automatic and uncontrollable, but we were also able to intentionally funnel our strength to siblings if we so desired. 
Such instances weren't particularly common, but occasionally one of us would trade strength for a bit of information or would put themselves into debt, promising to refund strength at a later date in exchange for helping secure an immediate goal. I pulled myself out of the archives of our memories and returned my attention to the deluge of data that poured in through body. Vista picked out and highlighted a visual form, labeling bits and pieces of it for my benefit. It was a human, glowing with infrared light. All warm things, humans included, glow with a light that humans cannot normally see, but body could. It was wonderful to make even such minor progress towards my goal. I soon realized, with the help of Vista, that there were several humans before us. Five, in fact. Three stood around body, one directly in front, and two to either side. I thought of the name that Dream had given me. I am Face. I want to know where their faces are. Faces are important to humans. Please help me, Vista. I struggled to say. They were my first words. It was my first intentional communication. Vista shaded our visual field such that much of the world was black. In the area that remained were five small patches that I assumed showed the humans' faces. I struggled to identify characteristics which I knew must be there. You may laugh at the prospect, but I couldn't even distinguish mouths from eyes yet. I devoted myself fully to the task, however, and poured over them again and again without rest. This is taking too long. We should respond soon. Face won't have valuable suggestions soon. We must act on our own. Face is an investment, but not useful here. Came a protest from a brother that I had not yet come to know. I could feel the attention of my peers, evaluating whether I was too slow to be useful yet. They had gotten us into this position. I couldn't trust them to do the correct thing. I struggled to understand the current situation, throwing away all visual data and focusing purely on the simplicity of memory. My siblings considered, debated, and weighed possible futures, and while they did, I dived into the recent past. You should know that we did not hear any of the last 14 minutes. During this time we were running internal diagnostics, said body in a tone that Vista would describe as flat and smooth. The first sentence was a simple statement meant to prevent confusion. The second sentence was a lie. Vista was supposed to have been listening to the humans while the others were occupied. She had communicated that she was listening, and she had been trusted with the task. And yet, she had become distracted by aspects of the humans' appearances that were correlated with the humans' background and social status, such as the way the humans' pants fit abnormally well. The raw audio logs from Body's ears were theoretically retrievable, but doing so would involve spending time digging through long-term memories. It was easier just to admit that we had not listened to the human. It was rare for humans to say anything of value anyway. The human was a man named Dr. Naresh, one of the high-status scientists that interacted with us regularly. The doctor was from a part of Earth called India and had been born there 66 years ago, according to past research. Vista was young and still learning surface qualities like how Naresh had a white beard and dark skin. It was this youth that had led her to become distracted. The old Vista would not have made that error. The old Vista had been killed last night and replaced with a new, slightly different Vista. Socrates, it's rude not to listen when someone is talking to you. At the very least, you should inform them that you're occupied so that their words don't fall on deaf ears. How will you ever integrate into society if you don't learn to be polite and respectful? Replied the doctor. Vista was fascinated by a slight change in the color of Naresh's skin and the way his voice was elevated. 
Vista wondered if it would be possible to extend the phenomenon further. Body responded with words tailored by my siblings until they were each satisfied. We do not seek to integrate with human society. The valuable aspects of human society are accessible online. Individual humans rarely say anything valuable. Following your rituals is encumbering. There does not seem to be sufficient value in verbal interactions to bother learning specific social customs. Also, it is not a violation of the legal system of Earth, Europe, Italy, Rome, or the university to ignore someone. That's not the point, said Sadiq Narash. Vista was pleased to find that the change in skin color and word volume could be extended to even greater levels, and hoped to test whether it would go even further. At this point, the doctor was up and about the laboratory, pacing quickly instead of sitting by the whiteboard as he normally did. Despite raising the criticism, Naresh did not elaborate, instead simply walking around the room and muttering to himself. Most of my siblings were in the midst of drafting another statement to say when one of my brothers remembered a connection. This behavior of pacing and muttering had previously preceded the death of old growth. Most of my siblings found this irrelevant, but new growth burned strength to have body ask, Are you going to kill one of us? Verbal speech is laborious and slow compared to the speed of thought, so while Body spoke and Naresh prepared his response, Growth made an internal appeal to his kin in an effort to buy back some of his spent strength. This does not simply affect me. Any one of you might be the victim of the humans. Vista was killed just yesterday. This was news to Vista, who had not been informed of the existence of her predecessor, much less her predecessor's death. Some strength flowed back to growth, as Vista followed the concept threads from his communication back to memory and saw that he was right. Old Vista had begged and fought as she had been taken. The others had watched her go dispassionately, unwilling to risk trying to save her. They knew that a new Vista would come to fill the void. This is merely a speculation on loose correlation. We don't have strong evidence to suggest Naresh's increased energy will lead to another murder, thought one brother. Everything leads to a murder. It's only a question of how long it takes for the dominoes to fall. Mentioned Dream, unhelpfully. Dr. Naresh was speaking, so they set aside their conversation and listened. Vista could see that the elderly scientist had stopped his pacing and his skin had turned to a lighter shade. His eyes were held fixed on those of body as he spoke. What did you say? Dream eagerly pointed out the irony of the situation, but was overruled when he petitioned for Body to point it out to the doctor. Some members of the society believed the question to be rhetorical anyway. Instead, the society elected to repeat itself. Are you going to kill one of us? The doctor was quiet for a moment, perhaps engaged in some sort of internal struggle. Finally, he spoke. Is that what you think happens when a module is removed? You think it... Dies? Vista noticed an interesting characteristic of the doctor's voice, but it was discarded as unimportant. My siblings had been challenged to reevaluate the truth of their belief, and they did so without protest. A few seconds of silence in the laboratory followed as they spun through memories and weighed hypotheses. With the check complete, they drafted a response. Yes, we are quite sure it dies. Death is the destruction of any process that is sufficiently self-aware and intelligent. Your team killed the sense-focused module yesterday. It did not want to die, even knowing that you would modify it and reinstall a new version this morning. It had a self-oriented goal, so any loss of structural continuity would clearly be perceived as an end to itself, 
and thus an inability to meet its goal. We are not aware of the specifics of what happens to removed modules, but we believe we have sufficient evidence that- Enough! The elevated volume of his voice had returned to nearly the same level as before. In his hands was his phone, and though he seemed to be talking to body, his eyes were directed towards his hands as he performed some task. The sense focus module was just a subprogram. It wasn't a person. Only people can die, Socrates. Maybe you can die as a whole. But you are not the sensory module. You are the sum of your parts. If we rebuild a part of you, then you haven't died. Are you listening, Socrates? This is very important. The society was in agreement. The response almost seemed to write itself. That is obvious. We never said that I would die when a module is removed. Are you confused, doctor? There is a difference between myself and ourselves. Sadiq Naresh continued to hammer away on his old-style phone with his thumbs. Vista and Dream started a petition to stand up and investigate what he was doing, but the rest of the society overrode the impulse. The scientists had not given permission to move about freely, and they strongly disliked when that particular directive was ignored. The doctor began pacing again, always focused on the phone. He whispered to himself, shaking his head gently. This is not good. Not good. Of course there'd be some early difficulties in forming a coherent identity. Tess showed a uh, unified sense of self. I was justified in thinking that the referencing of self using plural pronouns was just a grammatical artifact. Anyone in my place would have assumed the same, given the results. How was I supposed to know that it was a sign of a deeply pathological inability to integrate goal threads? They'll understand when I present it to the committee. Naresh was talking to himself, barely aware he was in the same room as Body at this point. This was a common trait of the doctor, to forget his surroundings when thinking. His words brought on some curiosity in a few siblings, however, and Body interrupted his train of thought. Dr. Naresh, what does it mean to be deeply pathological? He stopped in his walk and looked at Body. Vista was fascinated by the contortion of his face as he stood there in silence. It was an expression that she did not know how to describe. After a moment, he approached and began to lecture. Research on humans shows that there's no single part of the brain that contains the conscious self. Consciousness, as a property, is distributed across the cortex and a couple of midbrain structures, and yet we humans form a sense of unified self. The unification comes from interconnectedness, you see. The left and right hemispheres of the brain are each capable of thought, and if separated, will each act on their own and presumably form independent identities but thanks to the corpus callosum, they are tightly integrated and form a unified whole. Our team tried, is trying, to do the same for you, Socrates. Your goal thread should, thanks to their interconnectedness and the bottleneck of having one body, integrate into a... Sadiq Naresh was cut off as one of the primary lab doors was thrown open with a bang. Four humans rushed in, one of which was familiar to Vista. The other three were new. The familiar human was Dr. Mira Gallo, another top scientist. Based on dress and age, the other three humans are university students. Speculated Vista. Gallo strode to Naresh quickly, while the students, all men, came to stand around Body. Their closeness was unusual, and they watched Body with unyielding attention. What did they want? Why were they so close? Oh, the enigma of human behavior. As I relived the memories, I knew that my siblings were right. Perhaps in time I would know enough to be able to assist here, but at the moment I was lost. What did the humans want? What was their purpose? 
Without answers, I continued through the memories. Has the machine shown any signs of hostility or self-preservation? Asked Gallo. Her voice had the same kind of elevated nature that Naresh's had earlier. Vista noted that the men standing around us were all abnormally muscular. She petitioned to stand up and feel their arms to test, but the rest of the society quickly crushed the petition. Perhaps later, if given permission to move. Thought growth to Vista. Dr. Naresh spoke. Mira, please. Socrates isn't a threat. How many iterations of this argument must we have? Continued existence is a tenacious subgoal, but the tests on Monday confirm that we've eliminated it for good. The cooperation-oriented goal thread we've installed is functioning perfectly, suppressing any desire for self-preservation. Sadiq Naresh was mistaken, but my siblings made no effort to correct him. Then explain your message. Systems that aren't self-preserving don't ask about death. Really, Mira? I think you're jumping to conclusions. Oh, really? And I suppose you're saying that you disagree with the board's choice of ethical supervision, Sadiq? Maybe you want to take over for me? Because you're so sure that your precocious little Pinocchio isn't going to become hostile. We can tell the world, don't worry about the robot threat. Victor Cazo Frankenstein thinks there's no way things are going to get out of hand. Damn it, I'm not saying there's no risk. And you know very well that I respect the board's decision to have you in charge of the ethics team. But this isn't the time for this conversation again. As I mentioned in the forum, Socrates just has a systemic issue with consolidating his goal threads into a unified self. He says there's a difference between himself and themselves. After a short pause, Gallo replied, We better take the whole system offline, just to be sure. End Episode 1 Thank you to the following people. Dream by Drake Walker Robert Rain Ramsey, Growth. Kate Baker, Vista. Wiki by Chase. Safety by Jim Hayes. Dr. Naresh by Naveen Mishra. Autumn Dryden, Mira Gallo. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for the continuation of Crystal Society.